The Future Works, a podcast for workforce professionals, hosted by me, Melinda Mack. But we know that about 24% of all workers who earn low wages were 18 to 24. So they were young adults. They are among a big chunk of the displaced workforce. But are we talking about it? That's 13 million young people. Government in particular cannot go back to um, a non-technological solution for contact and availability and support for not just young people, but really for everybody. You can be angry and I can be empathetic to that, but I can never say to a client, I know 100% of what you're going through and how you feel. We're midway through the month of June and nearing day 100 of the COVID-19 crisis here in New York. Our governor just announced he's ending his daily press conferences as the daily death rate here in our state is leveling off below 20 a day. Summer's just around the corner and I know it's true, I just heard the ice cream truck go by. And after a couple of really difficult months, we're all slowly looking around and looking forward towards reopening. Restaurants are starting to welcome back their customers. Many employees are starting to return back to work many with adjusted schedules and as well as new rules and requirements related to COVID-19 protections. I think some might even say we're starting to get back to quote unquote normal. However, I think the last three months, especially for workforce professionals, have underscored several really important issues that not only have been true, but have been true all along, and now are coming to light in a way that's incredibly important as we start to think about economic recovery. As everyone knows at this point, we're seeing mass unemployment rivaling the Great Depression, if not in some ways surpassing it. We have 20 million Americans as of today unemployed and close to 3.5 million New Yorkers who are either receiving unemployment insurance or pandemic unemployment assistance. And while many, many New Yorkers have lost their jobs, there has been a glaring disproportionate negative impact for people of color and individuals who are working in low wage work as well as young adults. It's just been unambiguous in terms of the impacts for individuals who were already struggling to make it in the labor market prior to the economic downturn. It's not fair, it's not equitable, it's not good for New York. And in many ways, our task ahead includes dismantling some of the systemic racism in policymaking, in the way that we hire, the way that we think about um, training and upskilling New Yorkers that needs to just be addressed if we're going to actually make a difference um, this time around as the economy recovers. Today's episode of The Future Works is focusing on one portion of individuals who've been pretty significantly impacted by the economic downturn, and that's young adults. If I look at some of the recent data coming out from the Pew Research Center, I think what we know is that the sectors that have seen the biggest job losses, who have been the most vulnerable or hardest hit during this downturn, include accommodations and food service, retail, arts and entertainment, personal services like barbers, nail salons. And when you look at the numbers, the numbers are disproportionately impacting people of color, as well as young adults. Around 24% of young adults are working in those most vulnerable sectors. So we have a big task ahead. We don't want to see any of the gains that we've made in connecting and reconnecting young adults who are out of school and out of work back into employment. But we also know that we have a big task ahead in terms of how we change and restructure our economy. 
So with that, I am so thrilled to be able to bring you today a portion of a conversation that we were able to have at our youth learning lab back at the beginning of the month. We were able to talk to three leading experts around the long-term impacts the last couple of months are going to have on young adults across New York. So you're gonna hear from Keisha Bird, who's the Director of Youth Policy at CLASP. Also Nina Allendort, the Deputy Commissioner of the Division of Youth Development and Partnerships for Success at the New York State Office of Children and Family Services. And Christine Salazar, the Director of the Puerto Rican Family Institute. Later on in today's episode, you'll also hear from a young adult around what their experience has been like living through the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as much of what's been occurring across New York related to COVID-19. So with that, we hope you enjoy today's show. A quick programming note, we are moving to monthly podcasts to be able to keep up with the demand, but also recognizing everyone's schedules are starting to shift and change as we move into summer, but keep your great ideas coming. Enjoy today's episode. Yes, thank you, Melinda. So a couple of um, things that I wanna say um, before I get into like specifically around youth employment, and you already started this, but I think um, you've assembled such a great panel because we really have to situate what we're thinking about in the last three months, as well as in the last um, several weeks in the context of COVID, public lynchings, and uprising. So we have to hold all of those together. So we're not only talking about economic mobility, security, and income, we're talking about mental health and well-being. And we also are talking about um, alternatives to incarcerations, incarceration, alternatives to um, you know, police presence. And this is what we've heard from young people and young adults we've been working with over the last decade or so, but now I think the rest of the country is really, really seeing it. So we have to hold that space. We also have to really think about, and I'm, I'm glad Nina brought it up, is we think about equity, we think about racial equity at the forefront, but also gender, also geography, also identity, so that we can make sure that whatever policies we're crafting, investments and programs, they are really gonna reach um, the, the young people who are most impacted and most marginalized. And right now we're talking about young people of color, we're talking about black African-American youth. So all that in context, what we did a few weeks ago is we held a call to action town hall with about 500 uh, young leaders and their allies. And we heard a couple of things from the young people what we're saying. Um, we heard uh, that they want us to <clears throat> place all of this in the historical context of their lives. So when we think about older young people who may have aged out of the programs that um, this group may be um, working in or serving those young people, they are millennials, right? And they've already had a once in a lifetime financial crisis. For those young adults or teens coming up, they were younger when there was a once in a lifetime financial crisis. Now we have a once in a lifetime global pandemic and an ongoing onslaught of public lynchings, of school violence, and so forth. So what we've heard from them is that they're not okay. So it's our job to figure out what do we need to do with that. So historical context. We've also, they also told us that they want more opportunities and more spaces for them to just, for me not to be their echo chamber, and I'm glad to be a part of that class, is happy to be a part of that when we're advocating on behalf of them and with them. But how do we create spaces in our policy formation, in our program development, and our funding structures 
that such that young people are doing what we're doing today. And so that's what we've also heard. As it relates specifically to their economic security, there were a couple of different things we're hearing and seeing. One is navigation, navigation. So that's not just navigation of, you know, well, now the you know, summer job was closed, now it's open, how do I find it? If I wasn't already looped in because I'm, this is my first time, where do I go? Everything's virtual. Uh, I'm eligible for this direct stimulus check. How do I get it? What does that mean? What does that look like? What is unemployment insurance? I guess I was a gig, work, gig worker, can I get it and all of that? So we're figuring out ways with policy fixes, but I also think it comes down to implementation, obviously at the state and local level with all providers and practitioners to help this navigation. The other um, issue we're hearing, and I'm, I'm sure this is all across the board, is about technology, is about, um, is about the hardware, the software, the use, and um, paying for, for services. So you have more data for your, you need more data for your cell phone. You know, you maybe you got something from a school district. Can you use it? For those young people who are opportunity youth, they're out the, you know, they, they weren't a, attached to a, a school that may have been able to give them that hardware. And the third thing is uh, food. Food and nutrition is something that was really important. Um, I'll end so we can start the conversation, but I just want to, a few steps that I want to share. And actually, um, some of them we've been using really since this pandemic started, but a couple I pulled this morning just so we can see the latest unemployment numbers. But we know that uh, about 24% of all workers who were in low wages were 18 to 24. So they were young adults. They are among a big chunk of the displaced workforce. But are we talking about it? That's 13 million young people. We, of that, 7 million were without a college degree. So we thinking about education and employment hand in hand. We already knew we had about 4.5 young people who were out of school and out of work. And so that number is now tripling. Um, and then here's some recent data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Of teens, 16 to 19, from January to through April, the unemployment rate went from 13% to 32%. For young adults who were 20 to 24, it went from 7.6% to 25%. When you disaggregate it by race, it tells a diff interesting story. What it shows is that Black youth went from 24 to 29%, so not a jump, but that means that they weren't in the labor market already. But for white youth, um, we see for teens, 11% to 31%. For young adults, 6% to 24%. For Hispanic and Latino young people, we see 14% to 35% for teens, and for young adults, 7% to 26%. So what we're seeing is this is impacting all our young people, disproportionately some that the pandemic, but it's also showing that historically, African-American youth were not even in the mix in terms of economic opportunity and jobs. So I'll turn it over there. I hope that was a good framing for you, Melinda. Um, but I'm really fired up about what we can do for our young people. Thanks, Keisha. And part of why I appreciate Keisha so much is not only she come with the data, but you're always talking to young adults. So it's not just the numbers, it's, the, it's actually hearing the real lived experiences that our young adults are facing. So thank you for that. So I want to give Christine and Nina a chance to also reflect a little bit on the last couple of months. Um, Christine, I'll have you go first. Um, so from your experience, what you're seeing, what you're hearing from the, the folks that you see and this, the individuals you support, um, what are some of the reactions um, to what's been happening just the last couple of months? So, you know, 
the, a lot of the population that comes to see us already has a long-standing history of trauma. So um, those of us in the mental health field, we're kind of used to, you know, we got to deal with trauma, we got to uh, provide support. But now what we see is that um, our clients are in like a constant state of crisis one after another and you know what we what we would the tools that we would use in the past that would kind of alleviate some of the symptoms now it's just kind of putting a band-aid on it um you know we're seeing a lot more people who are angry um sad you know if we had social isolation before now it's twice that um we've noticed an increase in um, alcohol consumption um, you know, with not being able to go out, people just are trying to fill their time up with something. And, you know, when you want to stop your thoughts or you don't want to feel bad, unfortunately, a lot of our clients do tend to go back to their negative coping skills. Um, and with us being shut down and only being able to do tele teletherapy, it's really difficult to kind of even just have that warm conversation sometimes. Um, a lot of the clients that we service don't have the technology to be able to do face-to-face. Uh, -face. So we're doing a lot of just phone check-ins, um, you know, but they don't have the privacy that they would once have when they would come into our offices. Um, we've seen an increase in um, family conflict at home, um, which has made it very difficult because, you know, in the past we'd be able to at least see if someone had uh, bruising marks on them. Now we kind of just have to hope that they're going to tell us that things are going on in their homes. Um, you know, for, for the population that we tend to serve, uh, we used to be able to provide, um, we had a food pantry on site, so they could come on, but you know, our clinics are closed. So we've had to also adjust the way that we provide services. So uh, we've partnered up with our case management um, component and we deliver food to people's homes now. Um, you know, this is also quite intrusive for those people that do have uh, access to going online we get to see a side that we never saw. We get to see a glimpse of their homes. Um, interestingly enough, we've also seen a level of dysfunction that maybe we weren't privy to before because we couldn't see what was going on in their homes. Um, so everything is just heightened. And I think with, with providers or at least the staff that I work with, um, I've also encouraged them that they have to also stop and reflect because we sometimes want to put on that Superman cape and just kind of like save um, the people that we work with, but at this point, I think we're all in, the, in, in, in similar situations where all of us could use a little saving, a little bit of a hug here and there. Um, so, so we're just seeing a lot of the symptoms that we normally see, but much more heightened, unfortunately. And what are you hearing, Nina? Well, you know, I'm hearing all kinds of things that are very um, much in line with what both Keisha and Christine just said, but I, I do want to start by um, calling back a little bit and, and talking about some of the policy opportunities that um, we are seeing now and how to sort of institutionalize some of the good things that are happening now so that we don't go back, when we go back to whatever the next normal looks like, we don't um, slip backwards in some areas where we've had real progress. So the first area, and Keisha, I think you really, um, hit on this is around uh, decarceration and the de decrease of number of young people who are in detention um, and even in placement. And, um, you know, this pandemic really forced people to have an even different lens on what youth really needed to be 
in the most restrictive settings for community safety reasons. And even though New York has done a tremendous job on reform, right, and Raise the Age has, is sort of in its full um, flourish now, um, this really showed us that there's more that we could do, that there were even fewer kids who could be held in the most secure settings and that community safety wasn't going to fully suffer. So I just want to put a pin in that to make sure that we're identifying the positive opportunities that have sort of risen unintended possibly, um, but that we keep that conversation live. Um, I think the other thing that is really a potential it's really a double-edged sword, is the education delivery methods. Um, while a lot of young people have really struggled um, with being able to learn online, <clears throat> the opportunity to have learning at your own pace, um, to really think about the hours where young people's brains are online um, versus when schools are online. I, again, I think that there's some potential real learning here about whether you move to project-based learning for some young people rather than just seat time in a classroom um, and, and how do you use the platforms like we have now for real collaboration um, across young people who may not even be in the same school, right? You could, or even in the same country, right? That there are, are potential real opportunities to broaden out the way that we think about education, particularly for young people who have struggled in traditional classroom settings. Um, and I also think that, you know, we have learned that young people do have, are connected, right? They may not be fully connected, um, and we've known this for a long time, but really thinking about how government in particular cannot go back to, um, a non-technological solution for contact and availability and support for, not that's not just young people, but really for everybody. What, again, this sort of forced us to behave differently in a way that government is often um, not the most nimble in, in being able to do. And now how can we, again, institutionalize what has worked um, and really rethink some of our traditional practices so that we don't lose the positives when we go back to um, a more open, connective society. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing, and this really isn't about what um, the pandemic has done, but it's really about, um, as Keisha, as you said, the public, you know, the lynchings and the current civil unrest. I think it's really an opportunity to open the dialogue even more that, you know, traditionally young people of color, particularly, African-American males, um, but even females, particularly who are court involved, the dialogue has often been about how scary they are, right, in the criminal justice system. This has really created an opportunity to talk about how scared they are um, of, you know, the encounter in Central Park, the encounter with police, and really having to face the fact that our dialogue has been backwards and to really have an opportunity to look at the underlying toxic influence of consistent fear, not to, we talk about toxic stress, but I think fear um, really needs to be named um, as part of the fear and really being able to examine um, how young people respond to institutions um, that are there to support them 
um, when they're in a state of fear and anxiety and what those institutions, what we as the adults who create and shore up those institutions are responsible for creating safe and supportive spaces to really bring down the stress. So I think that those are all opportunities that have come from this incredibly difficult time that we would be remiss not to take advantage of. Um, and then I also think that this has highlighted issues, particularly around LGBTQ youth, um, the stresses of not being able to leave the home and find their supports outside the home. We're seeing a lot of um, you know, domestic tension um, that has increased. Um, so really looking at how to provide supports for young people and their families who are struggling um, culturally um, to understand and accept their young people. How do we do a better job of supporting the adults to support their, their youth while we also make sure that young people are safe and have places to be. Um, and I also think that, you know, the, we're in a moment where not only can we not understand that young people are scared, but I don't think we're going to be able to, I hope we're not gonna be able to go back to the conversation around um, individual failings rather than structural responsibility and failings. I think, you know, when everybody is talking about structural racism and um, the impact of structural racism, I'm really hoping again that we as a nation and we certainly as a state are, are in a good space to take a leadership role to really, you know, our governor has talked about it, really look very hard at what, where we can pull the roots out finally after so many, you know, 300, 400 years to really be very honest about where those roots still lie and how can we un uproot them so that young people everywhere of, of all races can flourish because institutional racism hurts everybody unequally, but it does hurt everybody. So I think that those are some of our opportunities um, that we have available that I've heard from young people. And the other thing that I would say is that really again to echo Keisha, um, we have to really center youth voices um, in our and really let young people tell us what they need. Um, my situation, I'm not 20 anymore. Um, I was once, but my situation as a 20 year old was very different. The world was a very different place. So I, we really need to create the space for young people to authentically and supportively really be heard um, so that we can learn how to help them better. So to shift gears a little bit, um, back to the labor market data, right? I think it's gonna to be tough for anybody who doesn't have a job to get reemployed. It's gonna be exceptionally difficult for young adults to be able to get reemployed. Um, and as Christine shared, that's creating all this additional downward pressure on anxiety, emotional response, how folks are being able to handle in some ways unintended poverty that they weren't expecting to be experiencing or even deepening the poverty that they're already in. Um, when we think about the last economic downturn, we know that the impact on young adults um, really was significant and was slow to return, but also this one in particular, the sectors where they typically work has been decimated. And so I think it'd be great, Keisha, if you could just talk about what you're hearing and what you're thinking about in terms of where we're gonna be able to connect young adults to real work experience moving forward. Yeah, that's a good question. And um, it's something we've been talking about for a long time since um, I, you know, I, I started this 
work nationally during the Great Recession. I think a couple of things is that private sector um, has a role to play, but we really need robust public sector responses. And that doesn't, it means at the federal level, it means at the state level and New York State and, and not um, you know, defunding programs, but actually ratcheting, ratcheting up investments and at the local level. We know state and local governments are strapped because of the pandemic. So that's why we need a federal response. We know over the last 40 years, investments in workforce development overall and youth workforce development in particular has plummeted, you know, and I'll you know, provide some of those stats for folks who might be interested in it following the um, discussion. So what we know is that we're not funding at scale. We have millions of young people who weren't being served. So we need different kinds of strategies. So we need public sector employment strategy programs. So that's subsidized jobs, that is transitional jobs, as different private sector industries are coming on board. We know many of the small businesses, which are the heartbeat to supporting young people in their first job, in their summer job, in their second job, and so forth, are may not open in their communities. And so what do we do in the meantime? Do we just, you know, throw this away, you know, and say, well, you know, when in the five years you'll get an opportunity? And then again, I mean, I really like that you pointed this out then we'll blame the young person for not getting that opportunity. And this is a structural issue that hits hard all across the board, as I mentioned in the stats, but it's a structural issue that disproportionately is going to hit young people of color because of the discrimination and because of you know, institutional racism that they already face. And so we have to figure out how we collectively um, demand from the public sector, work with the public sector, um, to have investments at scale. And, uh, and too often we just have little, you know, programs and it really, really needs a large scale response akin to what we had after the Great Depression. And I think some people are getting that, but we need more public will from our, um, from our, our leaders. Our young people are demanding it, so we have to, you know, be, be there to support them. You know, it's interesting. I, so I've, my staff knows and my family knows because I talk about it all the time. I've been reading everything I can on the WPA um, to just really understand like how it was structured, where were there huge potholes that we, at this point, I, I've been jokingly saying it's like an ex-boyfriend. You look back and you think like, it was so wonderful. And you realize eh, it wasn't all that great in some ways. But I think we often forget because of the generation, the time frame, a lot of the people participating in the WPA were, were young, people under 30 who had young families that they were trying to support. Um, but I sort of like what you're describing because in some ways it's taking what we know is like the summer youth employment program and really finally doing a full year round work program that allows young adults to experience different pieces of work. So whether it be public sector, whether it be working in um, you know, a nonprofit space, working in um, a, a private setting, um, someone just asking what WPA means. It means the Works Progress Administration. And so this was that big movement after the Great Depression, um, or really in the midst of the Great Depression, to get people back to work. And it was fully sponsored by the federal government under um, FDR. And so, I, again, I think it's interesting for us to, again, think about this as an investment in our future and more importantly, an investment in the long term outcome uh, for young adults. Um, so I'm going to actually shift a bit again from the from the unemployment piece um, around how we're actually supporting young adults who are going through trauma. Um, so, Christine, I know you had mentioned a couple of resources that you have 
Um, but again, many of the folks who are coming through or working in work, uh, workforce programs, they're not social workers. Some are, some are not. Um, and they really need to be able to figure out what are the best resources and tools or ways that they can support young adults who are either in trauma or their families who are going through a really um, you know, difficult time. And so from your perspective, where are places that people can go for resources? Or are there certain things that um, individuals or signs that people they should be looking for um, to recognize that young adults are in trauma? So, so one of the first things I often tell the providers that we do work with is really understanding what trauma may or may not look like. Um, I think sometimes we go in with this preconceived notion of, well, trauma is supposed to look like this. But depending on someone's level of trauma, the amount of trauma that they've had throughout their whole life, sometimes you're not even able to see those signs because this is just kind of what they've always been used to. Um, and that in itself is something that we have to pay attention to as well. Are you not even processing what is going on? Um, so, you know, being able to identify the psychological um, stressors that, that may be occurring, whether it's, you know, you see someone who's in denial, someone who's kind of just doesn't want to talk about stuff, um, noticing um, if people are able to even concentrate on the conversations that you're having. Um, you know, we tend to think it's just anxiety and fear or, or anger and shame, but, you know, withdrawing all of a sudden from, from others, uh, you know, not picking up your calls as a provider where you're just trying to check in and see, uh, you know, how are they doing, what's going on. Um, you know, it's about also checking in on the, maybe the more emotional psychological aspects um, you know, what is their sleep like? Is it an uninterrupted sleep? Are they having nightmares? Um, you know, are they having any visual images while they are at home or on, you know, outside on the streets? Um, any confusion? You know, a lot of these things may just be something that looks like it's in the moment, but if we don't address these things, they can have very long-term effects. Um, you know, whether it is on our mental health or just our physical health, you know, a lot of the stress does create a lot of issues with the liver, the kidneys and stuff like that. So oftentimes what I tell providers is, you know, check in, make sure that they are connected to a primary care doctor that they can contact if they're noticing um, any signs of medical issues, health issues. You know, I myself all of a sudden started having pain in my neck and normally I would just ignore it, but now that I'm home all day and like I feel it constantly, I'm like, oh my God, I, you know, I have to check in with my doctor. So some of the basic things that we would do for ourselves is what I tell providers we have to do with our clients because they may not be so forthcoming with telling us what they need. They may not even know what they need. Um, you know, when it comes to the tools that, I, that I'll tell providers to use, it's difficult when you're not a therapist and you don't have a background in social work and what I strongly encourage people is please do not take on that role. You know, we, we, we are trained. Uh, we have supervision. We have the additional supports um, when we are managing crises and mental health issues. But I think sometimes providers may fall into that unknowingly because they, you know, they just want to help. Um, but oftentimes I'll tell them, no, you know, let them know that there are trained professionals that can help you with this because I'm here to do a specific task with you. Uh, whether it's a provider that's helping people find a job, you know, you, you have to be able to gear that back into your role. Um, because what often happens, and I've noticed this, is that then the young adults will be like, well, I don't need to go to a therapist because my case manager really listens to me and offers me great advice. Um, and while you probably are offering great advice, 
part of our role is to dive deeper into that, to, to make sure that the foundation is stable, not just the superficial part. Um, and like I had said before, you know, oftentimes it's just putting a Band-Aid on it. And our role as mental health providers is to really kind of dig that out and start the healing process. Um, so when I'm meeting with providers, I, I will check in with them and ask them, you know, what do you need from me as a mental health provider? And what can I reinforce for you um, when you are meeting with your clients? Um, you know, doing the regular check-ins, you know, do you have food in the home? I think that that wasn't necessarily um, a question that we even mental health providers would ask um, because there's a lot of shame around that. You know, uh, how have you been managing without a job? Um, you know, what can we do to start preparing you for when we do go back? Because, you know, th this is, I'm hoping, very, it's going to be temporary, but it's going to have long-term effects. So it is also looking towards the future. You know, what are your future goals? You know, don't give up on those things. And, you know, having, having tools such as, you know, what does relax you? You know, um, oftentimes people don't even realize that art, meditation, breathing techniques, those are helpful as well. You, you know, you don't necessarily need to be a therapist to go online, you know, go on YouTube, learn a couple of quick techniques on how to breathe, belly breathing, meditation, yoga, you know, but making those recommendations. Um, I've often encouraged them to, to do these things with their patients. Um, I'm sorry, my patients, to do it with their clients. You know, what have you learned in treatment? Why don't you show me, teach me? You know, giving them an opportunity to also teach you what they use or what they may be avoiding to use also makes them feel helpful. Like they are actually also in some way uh, collaborating with you. Um, and I, I think in part that that is what we've been trying to work with our providers is the sense of community. You are not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not going to do this by myself and neither are you. Uh, and we don't have all the answers. So having that open conversation, you know, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about, let, let, let's just talk about it. It's racism. It's, you know, it's COVID. It's but are we really ready to have those open conversations? So I'll tell providers, you know, are you having these conversations with your own children, with your own families, with your colleagues? Before you jump in to talk to your clients about this, do you truly feel comfortable? Because they may judge us as well. We may have an opinion that they, you know, uh, may not agree with. And, and that's okay because that's part of the conversation that we should be having with all our clients. Um, so, can you bring up a really good point just to stop you there? I think the, the fact that we, as organizations, it's important we have a conversation about this together first before we start having conversations with young adults. I think to me, I, you're you're reminding me that you know young adults often stick with one person in an organization, but they do jump around. And it's not that everyone has to have the same opinion or same approach or same view, but it is important that your organization is uh, united in the ways that they're communicating and responding to young adults. So I, you just raised something that I think is super important and something we can do right now. Um, through Zoom, through other meeting and other techniques, just with the, the youth organizations that are here. I'm sure, Nina, as you think about the network of providers that you work with that support foster youth, young adults who are homeless, young, young adults who are returning from incarceration, um, are there resources that you direct folks to? Are there a network or connections to mental health services? Because one of the things I'm seeing, I'm looking in the chat box and some of the Q&A, I think organizations want to make sure this is something that they're providing or supporting young adults um, in their path to be able to get mentally prepared and really work on the stuff that they need to work on to be able to go to work and be productive, but they're not sure where to look. So where, how do you direct people? What kind of resources do you see available for your network? 
It's a great question, and actually, I sort of wrote it down and circled it um, as you were as you were talking, Chris, Christine. I think you know I'm going to be very uh, upfront that this age group um, really, once young people leave the pediatric, the child serving system, um, there are not so many super confident, um, culturally responsive, um, which includes this age group in particular. Um, mental health services for young adults. Um, it is a whole, and it, that's just not a New York State issue, that is a national issue. Um, there have been dialogues about, particularly for young people who have either complex trauma um, or who have persistent mental illness, um, how to really have that warm handoff from the child to the adult system. So I would identify that as a gap um, that would be important to, for um, our providers, particularly workforce providers. I, again, I, I really echo, don't be, try to fix it yourself if you're not a trained um, professional, um, because sometimes you do more harm than good. Um, there are some great resources for young people who are experiencing their first psychotic break um, that are specifically okay. for young people. New York State has been a real leader, and you can... Um, look for that uh, on OMH's website. You can always reach out to the local uh, mental hygiene um, director in your county to say, what are the resources available? Um, again, I think this is a moment of real potential with um, Zoom and online therapy. You know, we, again, you may not need to have the therapist in your town anymore. You may be able to find somebody who is, you know, up in Plattsburgh and you're down in Binghamton who is your best fit. Um, so I think that's another opportunity that um, is being explored. I'm, I'm not with OMH, so I would really defer to them. Um, there is mental health first aid. Somebody is, is just, um, putting this up on the chat box now. Um, but I think, you know, I think there are other things that we can do that are not specifically treatment for mental health. And, and we've been having some conversations um, at the state level about this different framework around healing. Um, and that healing is a very different approach than treatment, right? And that healing recognizes that there has been um, harm, often community level harm, um, and how can things like restorative practice, um, how can you partner with your restorative practice practitioner in your, in your local area um, to really create a space for healing that doesn't replace really important individual and or, and or family therapy, but that at least begins to create a safety um, network for young people. It doesn't mean there's no accountability. Right. It doesn't mean that young people people can behave however they want to behave, but really starting to embed the framework of recognizing, particularly now since so many people have had losses, right? And whether it's losses of a family member due to COVID or a teacher or a mentor, or simply the loss of, of freedom to do what you want to do and see who you want to see, or the loss of the securing institutions that young people have had 
Um, and really being able to have those conversations to say there has been tremendous loss that everybody has had. And, and you know, Christine, that place of empathy, my loss may look very different mm -hmm. than your loss, but we've all lost something. So how can we create that space together? Again, I, I want to be really clear, it does not take the place of professional therapy when young people really need that service. Um, and finding that is the appropriate, really sort of digging in at your local level. But I think really starting to have those conversations about how do we heal collectively, um, because it is a collective process, like how we healed after 9-11, right? Um, I was in, lived in New York City for 30 years. Um, that was a collective grieving and uh, moment for us to come together. Um, and it wasn't just a personal trauma. Um, so I think that this, we, there's a lot of similarities um, in how we can be community focused through our networks. So that would be, I can't solve the lack of good therapists for young adults, but we can at least start to have some supportive um, environments. The one thing that came up, and I thought Keisha unmuted, so I know you probably have a comment to add too. One thing that came up during our membership meetings for NIATEP, which is just something to explore, we haven't gone down the path yet, is because of, of COVID-19 and the social distancing requirements, there are a lot of schools of social work across New York State that have therapists or folks who are almost done with their training but need to be able to provide direct assistance and services to be able to get licensed. Mm -hmm. And so I think there might be an opportunity for us to reach out to or connect to some of these schools of social work, Hunter College, Binghamton, there's a few others across the state, and say, hey, this could be a huge opportunity for us to partner with young adult programs across the state to provide those training opportunities, but also a real network for young adults to connect to. So again, just I think part of this is about being creative and who we outreach to, but also recognizing that there are actually a lot of professionals who need clients to be able to practice the skills that they're learning and providing those direct services as well. In some ways, it might be nice to have a young adult in some ways providing services to a young adult, right? Um, Keisha, go ahead. Okay, so a couple of different things. We have a full body of work around um, young adult mental health and well-being policy, and it actually was an outgrowth of um, some conversations and focus groups I had with young men of color around the country in 2011, who we were talking about workforce development, getting reconnected, and what I heard loud and clear over and over again, especially from um, the young man in Baltimore, is that everyone needs a perfect stranger to talk to. And so we thought, again, as providers are doing so much and being so much to everyone, we need to make sure that our mental health systems, which Nina rightly pointed out, aren't adequate and policies, you know, really center youth and young adults. And what we heard from them, we've done interviews and focus groups, is that their well-being is in safe places. So the question is, yes, we need to have professionals and, and, and um, therapy in that way that's culturally competent and responsive, but they want more safe places to be. And you all provide many of those safe places. So the question is, how do we make sure that our um, mental health and our behavioral health systems can fund, support, and be a part of the cross-system kind of infrastructure that young people need to stay on track, to get on track. So we have a couple of recommendations with the Reconnecting Youth campaign that is not just calling for a large-scale um, national jobs program, but um, a billion dollars to really think about and center healing, um, to work on trauma through workforce programs in addition to the partnership and so forth. So I put a number of resources in the chat box, but also we'll follow up with those because we've heard a lot from young people, 
We've heard from systems leaders. We have a big opportunity now since everyone has been remote. Um, telehealth, for example, in the state of Maryland was, was going, it was idle. The pandemic happened, the governor signed the law. So what does, what does that mean? What does that open up for how we promote access to young people in terms of well-being, in terms of mental health? And the last thing I would say is that we also heard, you know, we know young people want to talk to young people. So how do we support peer support specialists as a pathway to different um, employment opportunities? They're already doing that. How do we get them more training that they need? And how do we make sure that they're also in safe places. So those are just a few thoughts because again, I think we have to hold these things hand in hand. Actually, so you're leading me to my last, last question and this is a time for the you know 170 people who are with us to put your questions in the chat box before we turn it over to this panel of incredible experts to get their feedback. Um, but you started to touch on Akeisha around what public policy needs to change and what it needs to look like. I mean, you talked a bit at the beginning about a, a nationwide jobs program. You talked about the lack of funding. I'm also hearing you talk about, we finally have a chance to actually really look at the whole person and actually fully integrate services to support young adults. Um, but also I think as you're describing this, like we have this shot we have a policymaker, Nina, in many ways you're a policymaker. I know you're a practitioner, but you're also a policymaker, right? Like, to make sure that the contracts of the state and the local governments reflect the fact that we have to be able, we can't do this like light touch stuff for everybody. It has to be able to support the intense nature of the services we're delivering. What are some of the things that CLASP is putting out? What are you hearing? What's the word on the street around what the policy changes need to look like at federal and state levels? So I think there are, there's more synergy with state and local um, practitioners and advocates um, as well as young people, and, and we already talked about, you know, large-scale jobs, not just six weeks, but all year round, um, more opportunities to reconnect and have pathways, you know, post-secondary education affordability, all of that, um, and, and mental health and well-being. So touched on those particular things, but I think where we really have a huge opportunity um, in bridging across sectors and silos and Nina, you talked about it, is the uh, decarceration and the, you know, the removing youth prisons. We say, oh, wow, we don't need these, you know, as, as we have been constructed. Oh, wow, we've been targeting um, young people of color. Okay, so what does that mean? Where do those resources go? How do they fund, fund the critical programs? And now what we're seeing over these last several weeks and this last week is how do we, um, you know, while maintaining safety, but like, what does it mean to defund the police, meaning police in our schools, um, which again, play on the fear and the trauma and for generations, Minneapolis severed their contract. What does that mean for what that city budget is going to do with those resources? So we have a huge opportunity there, but I don't think that um, the, 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 our policymakers, not you, Nina, but our elected officials, should I say, the, who have the first strength, um, are necessarily hearing that in the same way. You know, uh, you know, everyone's unemployed. So they're, you know, not thinking about their young people. They're thinking about young people, you know, maybe decades ago, two generations ago, who are relying on parents. And some are, but many are parents themselves. So they're not thinking about youth and young adults. As, as needing the same kind of resources as say, you know, someone who is, you know, my age or so. And so 
you know, they're like, well, that'll be later, maybe, maybe next summer. And we cannot afford to wait next year for the type of investments that are really, really needed. And I know we want to get to questions. I just want to say one last thing is that we know we can't program our way out of structural racism, right? Mm -hmm. We cannot. And so, you know, I'm also in a bit of a battle with myself who's done this work for, you know, my whole life being a youth worker, youth advocate and so forth. Um, you know, advocating for critical programs, but how do we make sure that these programs are a part of the healing process young people need as we're chipping away at structural racism and policies? So, you know, how do we do that? How do we hold that? How do we make sure our programs and, and our, um, and our uh, you know, the providers don't add to more trauma and more harm? And that's up to all of us to figure out how to do that. So Nina, since we keep calling you the resident policymaker, <laughs> any thoughts that you have? One of the questions that sort of came up, and I think it's um, in some ways attached to the way that we deliver services, is there always seems to be limitations and deficiencies in either program design, the way that we collect data, intake forms, and one of our colleagues calls it the administrivia that goes along with running a workforce organization. Um, what's your some of your thinking around what, what might need to shift or what are some of the things that OTDA or OCFS is just starting to sort of circulate around um, as ways to actually improve program design and delivery? I think, again, we need to ask young people. Um, I, I think the issue of identity, how young people identify and want to be seen is really, maybe it was always critical and we were just too stupid to know it, um, but it's such a live conversation. Um, so even something as simple as the language on your forms or the language that you use, um, even having a question, how do you identify um, your sexual orientation? How, what, what pronouns do you use? Um, what, um, what is your racial and ethnic identity? Not what are you, but what's your identity? Really starts the conversation. It, um, it shifts from here's information I need to know because I have to fill in boxes to who are you, right? And really figuring out how to set the, open your program with the who are you, not because I'm gonna about to get all invasive on you, but so that I can start to figure out how to meet your needs. And I think the other thing that I've been thinking about is, and it's you know part of my division's name, um, really, forging even non-intuitive partnerships, right? People that you wouldn't necessarily have thought of as being your collaborators to be able to meet the needs of, of, of young people, um, really taking a step back and looking, doing an eco map of your um, sort of community, who, what, what supports do you have that you don't normally draw on? Um, is there an arts organization um, where you could have synergy together? Is there um, some other thing that you could do and work from um, in your community that might be available? That's great. And Christine, any thoughts? Are there ways or things that you know, just having worked across these multiple systems, and I'm sure as you're talking to, to the individuals who are your patients or clients, um, or organizations, like there's all these other administrative hurdles they're jumping through. Um, talk about some of the things that you're hearing or where there's big frustration that you think we probably need to address. So, so being a provider and being a provider in a community that has very limited resources, um, especially uh, even just providing culturally sensitive services, um, what I try to convey at least at our clinic and with, with, our, with our clients is that I can't 
we can't do this by ourselves. You know, so so when they do meet a provider that they that they really feel they've connected with, we oftentimes invite them over to our clinic to um, teach us about their services and, and how can we better connect. You know, one of the things that um, I've started incorporating, at least in my practice, is that you know with the luxury of having Zoom, I can invite other providers into session, obviously with with the consent of of our patients, but. I think we've been missing this idea of community. Even though we're like, we're here for the community, we ourselves as providers, oftentimes, you know, we're in competition for grants and funding. And, you know, if, if we lose a, a client and somebody else gets it, then our numbers go down. But I think a lot of us in some way, shape or form, whether it's capitalism, what, what, whatever it is, have lost track that we all went into this for the same reasons, you know, there will always, and I jokingly say this to everybody, there will always be people who are depressed, who are anxious, who need our services. That There is no need for us to compete for that. There is an abundance of that. Um, you know, what I hope to see as we move forward is that collectively all these organizations that do work to help people come together under a platform where we say, you know what, you are not my competitor, you are my partner. Um, and as much as we wanna say, you know, we have these partnerships and whatnot, it is really also allowing them into our homes. So, you know, we, we often will have um, provider breakfasts at our agency because I don't know it all. You know, I, I come from a generation where, yes, social work was very different for me. I had to not only be a therapist, but I had to be a case manager. So I can balance that. But the people that are coming out of, uh, out of school nowadays, you know, they're really focused on the therapeutic model. And that's what I focus on. And you know what, go talk to your case manager about that because we're here to do this. Um, and I've really pushed for, you know, you, you can't be 100% versed in everything, but you can have networks. And if you practice that within yourself, your patients will see, oh, she depends on someone. I, I can do the same. Um, you know, so, so with what Nina was saying and what Keisha was saying of like, you know, we need to look at this more systemically. I think, you know, oftentimes we look at the pockets of areas that are missing, what's not working, what is working, but it really stops, it starts from the top down. And as long as those of us that are consistently fighting for, for our patients go into this together, we are a much more stronger force together than people can imagine. You know, mental health is not sexy, unfortunately. It, it does not sell. I can't make an ad to make people come in. But, you know, we have to use the resources that we have. And oftentimes, yes, the programs that help um, young adults find jobs are much more sexy than talking about trauma. So I will often partner with them. And, and, and you know, it's like, how do we build a story so that people see that it's not just one area that needs attention. We need to pay attention to all the programs that are out there helping because yeah. we all specialize in something but together we are so much more powerful i love what you're saying about like our in some ways our jobs as youth providers and organizations is to create networks to help our youth create networks and so in some ways like it's really around digging deep into the communities that we're serving to make sure we're creating this robust network of people who love and care about the young adults the way that we do. And I think that's just like such a powerful statement. So we have about two minutes left, right? So there's a couple of questions um, related to employment and youth employment. We're going to save those because they're going to really be addressed in many of the workshops. But I wanted to give each of you a moment of like your last moment of inspiration, the thing that's giving you hope um, in this in the next couple of months, the path moving forward. So Keisha, I'll have you go first. All right, so I think what's giving me hope, and I think when we started off, someone said yes, positive things. In the midst of all of this, this trauma, this, this, this unrest, um, 
young people are resilient, right? They're out on the front lines every day in our community. They're not, you know, contrary to what the media may only be portraying, they, they are there and they are willing and they're supporting um, and taking care of their, their community members. They're partnering with us. Um, also, what also gives me hope is the flexibility, the creativity, the innovation of so many providers who are on the front lines working with and serving young people who've been able to quickly on a dime figure out how do we continue to support and give them financial assistance. Oh, the policy says this, but we're going to do that. How do we stay connected with young people so that when they don't fall through isolation and, and period. So what gives me hope is that we have a lot to build from um, with our young people and um, community-based organizations and, and practitioners. So that is really what gives, gives me hope in this moment of so much uncertainty. Amazing. Nina. So this is going to sound funny coming from a bureaucrat, but what gives me hope is that I'm hearing a lot of love for young people. Um, and if you're really working from a place of love and respect, um, I feel like that's really, you know, a critical piece of the work that lifts young people's possibility to also work with hope. Christine. Um, I think what's kept me from drowning is that the, the, the young adults that I work with, they don't necessarily want to focus on all the negatives and they find an incredible way to instill humor, maybe sometimes inappropriate humor, uh, but the fact that they are looking to laugh, to live, to love, you know, that, that idea that they haven't given up, you know, as an older person, you know, you tend to think, oh, you know, it's right around the corner, you know, you can't accomplish certain things anymore. I can't get online. I can't figure this out. But the fact that they have also taken the time to help me with Zoom and to figure stuff out, uh, you know, the fact that, th that they also feel like they can help and not feel helpless. Um, has really been eye-opening for me where it's just like, maybe I don't always have to be the superhero. I mean, I can step back and learn something from them as well. And I think that's part of the reason why I've stayed working with young adults. Um, it's because they do invoke this idea that there's always room for change. There's always room for our possibilities. And when you want to give up and, and they go out and they do something that you are so proud of, it also kind of feeds back into you to say, you know, if they can do it, so can I. So before we wrap today's episode, we had to be sure that we spoke to a young adult. We'd be incredibly remiss after we've talked about young adult issues the entire day if we didn't actually talk to a young person about what they're feeling and experiencing. I had the great pleasure of speaking with Jorge, who is a young adult from Harlem, who talked about his experience and what his friends and his colleagues are experiencing over the last three months. I think one of the things that I'm recognizing is although, as Nina said, we were all young once, we were also young a long time ago. And what young adults are experiencing today with the massive influx of information, with the changes in the labor market, with the changes to the educational system, it's pretty incredible that they're functioning at all, to be honest. And so uh, Jorge joined us by phone um, from his apartment in Harlem. Um, he shared with us not only his experiences, but how he's taking some of this as motivation to action around supporting young adult issues. Um, and I really hope that you enjoy what you're hearing from Jorge as much as I did. 
So my name is Jorge Morales. I am uh, originally from Mexico. I immigrated to the U.S. when I was about seven years old, and I've been living in New York City, specifically in Harlem, uh, ever since then. I uh, currently attend the University of Rochester. Um, there, I'm a double major in political science and business, and I'm a rising junior there. Um, I'm also currently, um, uh, I've been a campaign leader for the Save SYP campaign uh, here at Teamstick Charge. And that's a little bit about me, yeah. So I wanted to talk to you, Jorge, because I had the opportunity to be in a meeting with you in a professional setting um, as it relates to the Summer Youth Employment Campaign. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about what the last couple of months have been like as a young adult, as you're living through a global pandemic, which is, I'm having a hard time living through this global pandemic, um, but also the important resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and how that's affecting and impacting young adults. So I'd just be interested to hear what your experience has been like. For sure. Well, it's been a complex one. Uh, when this all started, I mean, it just, everything escalated so drastically uh, where it went to, oh, there's like a case. And I was like, oh, we have to stay in our houses and until further notice. And you're just left where like, what happened? Because everything just changed so drastically. And I mean, um, I was able to stay in school to finish my semester um, over there. Um, thankfully I was granted that opportunity, but, um, it, it was even more difficult because a lot of my peers had to go home and just campus was dead. It was, I was, I was in a lot of solitude, obviously. So, um, it was definitely an awakening in a way of uh, a lot of different things. Just personally, uh, it, it was very hard to get accustomed to it at first, but, uh, thankfully I was able to. And ever since then, I mean, not just have I been in school, but I've been involved in Teen Stick Charge. And I've been involved in Teen Stick Charge for about two years, two and a half now. Uh, and there I've had um, various roles. I've been policy policy director for Teen Stick Charge. Um, when we first got into the world of policy and policy advocacy, um, we've done a lot of work around uh, specifically integration of the public school system here in New York City. Um, as many might know, New York City has the most segregated public school system. So we've been fighting alongside many other great organizations to try to um, change this because it's it's absurd that we live in one of the most diverse cities in the world and we're the most segregated one. It just it doesn't make sense. Um, and it, it not just does it not make sense, but it affects a lot of minority students, a lot of Black African-American students, a lot of Latino students, a lot of immigrant students in, in various multiple ways. So I, I think that's kind of where the connection and the resurgence of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement um, comes into place in for us personally, uh, because um, we've been doing a lot of this work for, for some time now. And... Um, yeah, so we've been we've been fighting for a lot of these things that are are part of the larger system and that have been affecting uh, a lot of these minority communities. So, I mean, obviously, you work a lot with your peers, right? So, other young adults who who are part of Teens Take Charge, but also just friends in your neighborhood, right? Um, when you're having conversations with them, what are your conversations like? Is it like, can you believe this? How crazy this is that we're all stuck at home? Or are you having what are the things that you're talking about with your friends when you think about the movements, um, the protests across New York City, but also like the serious impact the pandemic has had on neighborhoods of communities and communities of color? Like, what are the conversations like? 
For sure. So I think a lot of the conversations are very mixed. Uh, I either have um, a lot of a lot of a lot of my friends are are a little more scared, and some are less scared about it. Uh, some know a little more. Some are know less. So we all understand this at a different level in some way. And that has to do with a lot of the things that we watch in the media, with a lot of the things that we read through social media, multiple things in multiple sources of information um, that kind of change our perception about what the coronavirus is and how we should go about it. And so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Some, some of my friends I've been able to see through, I don't know, going for a run or going for a walk, something in that sort. And some are, are a little more scared. So they, we, we just talk on the phone or maybe talk through a video conference or something of that sort. So a lot of, a lot of my organizational work and the, the work that Teen Safe Charge does for the most part, I mean, and just generally has been online through video conference, through Zoom conference, um, Google conference, all these uh, different conference spaces now that there's so many. Um, and, and we have a lot of these conversations um, where we also try to understand how this has affected us personally, right? Uh, how it affects us mentally, how it has affected the way that we go about our every day. Because many students, they're finishing off the year now, but they've had, I don't know, like two months, two, three months almost of homeschooling, of online learning. And it, it's, it's been really diff different and difficult for them. Uh, not just because it's very different for everyone, because every school is implementing it in a very different way, um, but also because it's affected everyone in a very different way. Uh, some people feel like like they, they can't do anything. They don't feel a lot of mo motivation to do anything. And that was me early on. I, I, I could barely get up in the morning. It was really difficult. I just had no sense of, of a schedule of, of what day it was at times. It was really difficult. So I feel like it's it's a very mix of a thing. It, it ranges all throughout, and it's really interesting whenever we come together and are able to discuss that because then we're able to understand more about what's going around in our world and what's what's affecting a lot of our youth. The only the only sort of thing that I I can share that's like analogous in my own life is I was a rising junior. I started my junior year uh, during nine eleven, and you know, I remember some of the conversations we were having as students. And again, it was such a, when you think about the dramatic impact for your young adults who lived in New York city versus young adults who didn't, you know, some of it felt like you were, you were, everyone was experiencing it, but our experiences were so different and we all knew it was going to change the world, but we weren't sure how. Right. Um, and with COVID, I think the part for me, that's still so dramatic is someone who's just up the river in Albany, um, just knowing how many people who have, have died or have been sick or have a family member who works in the healthcare system that's going through extreme trauma and stress. Um, I just can't imagine what, what your friends and your, your peers are going through when you try to experience that. Exactly. I mean, I was, I was going to add that on as well. I think sometimes we also don't grasp at the fact that there's many individuals that have been directly affected by this virus. And I mean, it's, it's, it makes sense. Uh, the, this virus has, for the most part, affected uh, a lot of minority communities in, in, in very drastic uh, ways. And it's just, it's saddening to know that your friend has a dad that's in the hospital that's fighting for his life. 
And I've had, I, I've had that case as well, where I know that my friends are going through that. And I try to support them in, in the best way that I can. Uh, but it's also very difficult because there isn't so much that you can do. Um, and like just knowing the pain that it is to, to be from home and to know that your, your family member is in the hospital alone fighting this virus that we don't even know exactly how to go about it it just it's a really saddening um thing to go through it's it's really tough and i mean i can only imagine uh how much mental distress uh one might go through that i'm very thankful to have not gone through that i'm very thankful to have a healthy family and i mean the only the only thing that i could do in 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 all of that and, and appreciating all of that and appreciating all of the, the privilege that I have is to fight and, and to continue to fight uh, for what's right and to continue to fight to close a lot of disparities that are here because of, of systematic racism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I think you're sort of transitioning us to some of the things that that are driving you or the things that are worrying you about the future. Right. And you sort of touched a little bit about the structural and systemic racism that has been around all along. And now we finally have enough momentum to start to confront these issues head on and create really meaningful change. Um, what are the things that are worrying you about um, about the future? What are the, the unknowns that are like keeping you up at night or stressing you out when you think about the future? So many things. But I mean, <laughs> <laughs> some of the some of the most prevailing ones currently is is budgeting concerns that are occurring in the city because they're just such timely manners. Um, New York City has its budget due January 30, has to be done by July 1st. So we're, we're fighting a, a ticking bomb basically, uh, where we have to ensure that everyone comes to an agreement of what the budget is gonna look like and ensuring that that budget is, is truly gonna do the things that many of these politicians have been promising that it will do, which is providing for communities of color, uh, empowering the youth, not just through putting murals up throughout our city, but to, through giving money to these communities, giving crucial programming like summer youth programming, like uh, a lot of these camps, a lot of these different things that are truly empowering and provide enriching opportunities for our youth and for our communities of color. You know, I love that you're taking the things that you're worried about and turning them into action, right? And so like you started to describe a little bit about like all the issues that matter to you. And in some ways, it's so awesome to have a young adult already so knowledgeable about the city budget. I can't even tell you how much I wish we could get the rest of the workforce field to know like how the budget works because it's so important. Um, but in terms of the summer youth employment campaign, and so, you know, again, my our first interaction was around SYAP just a, just a week and a half or two weeks ago. Um, the state's got $44 million that it hasn't spent. And it's you guys are all sort of waiting on these dollars to come down to support some of these programs. Talk a little bit about SYEP and why it matters so much to you and to Teens Take Charge. I mean, summer youth is a way to close a lot of those disparities and, and that gap of opportunity that occurs for a lot of minority communities. Uh, summer youth employment here in New York City um, generally serves minority communities and communities of low socioeconomic background. So this provides many young people with their first job, something to put in their resume for the first time. Many of these individuals might not even know what's a resume. So providing them and opening up the workforce to them 
is crucial. And not just are you giving them a job, but you're providing them with a support system. Uh, and that's what it is. A lot, of, uh, a lot of what summer youth is, is checking in with these students. W what's going right? What's going wrong? How are they liking the experience? What are they getting out of it? Ensuring that they're reflecting and that they have that support to know I can do this and I can do even more. Uh, a lot of these opportunities range from being a cashier at a, at a local coffee shop to probably interning at, at a law firm or another part of the private sector. So they definitely range and they provide students with multiple um, very enriching opportunities. Um, and I mean, the, the, these are opportunities that as a minority student that comes from a low socioeconomic background, you can't, you can't really obtain. It's really difficult. Uh, you don't have the networking power that many affluent families and affluent communities might have um, because your parents are probably immigrants. Your parents are, are poor. They, they can't, they don't have access to these individuals that many affluent communities do have. So it, it's, it's really there to close those gaps. And when the mayor announces that he's going to cut this program uh, without consulting anyone, of course, the youth is going to be angry. Of course, the youth is going to be concerned because you're cutting off a program that that benefits them, benefits them, not just through that enriching opportunity, but through money that, that they crucially need. Because a lot of them use this money to provide also for their families, to provide yeah. a meal for their families, to take a little bit of the weight from their parents um, when they have to buy school supplies or many people that use it to provide for their college, for their future education. So when, when you take away this money, of course we're going to be angry because this is money that it, it's not a luxury. We, we need this money. We need this money to survive. Yeah. And I love that it's not, like, as you're describing it, it's, you're not just angry, like you're organized, right? We're, we're mad and we're, we want to make sure you understand that we know that you're making a choice. And the choice is not to benefit the people who need it the most and in some ways are going to be the city's workforce in the future. So I think, again, what you guys are doing has been, it's incredible to watch the organizing power that you've created amongst your peers. Um, and I think one of the questions I have for you is around, what do you hope, recognizing everything that has happened in the last couple of months, knowing the city budget, knowing what's been going on at the state budgeting budgeting level, um, you know, thinking six down, six months down the road, what do you hope government learns from this experience about what young adults need? I mean, I, I hope that they understand that the youth is not something where you can just cut from them whenever you feel like you need to, uh, because that's not how it works. Uh, we should be smart about our decisions. We should be thoughtful about those decisions. We should think about how those decisions are going to affect a lot of these communities. When you cut uh, funding from the Department of Education, when you cut funding from summer youth employment, when you cut funding for a lot of these programs that directly affect communities of color, you're directly affecting not just those communities, but all of our communities. Because every, everything is in interconnected. Everything is interconnected. So you're going to have more people that are going to be homeless because they don't have a lot of this crucial programming that they need. You're going to have a lot of students be left behind, which means that they might not even graduate. You're, you're, you're truly 
not enabling people to to truly pursue that that thing that we all want that pursuit of happiness that liberty and all these all these things that we so gratefully stand for as americans so when you cut these things that that's what you're doing you're you're putting a gate to the pursuit of happiness you're putting a great life liberty and the pursuit of happiness you know i that's man that's such a powerful statement um i think what i'd like to end with you on is knowing that you still have in some ways your whole life ahead of you right you're you're in some ways just getting your feet wet on the on your things that interest you your passions um being able to put your voice into action what's giving you hope what 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 do you look around and you look at your your peers and look at your colleagues and think you know i've got some hope that things are going to get better i mean one of the things and some of the things that have given me hope is just i've i've been i've been attending a lot of these protests and just being there and and feeling the energy of all these individuals it's it's just something that feels so empowering and and no word can truly describe that um I stand in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and I'm I'm very grateful to it because of this movement uh we have been also been able to push uh, a lot of this work forward as well because many many people are beginning to realize or many people already knew but now we're being vocal about that the fact that systemic racism isn't just police brutality police brutality is at the peak of it but there's so many more things on this umbrella education inequality uh healthcare inequality i mean the list goes on and on it's 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 truly tremendous and if we truly want to talk about black lives matter and if we really want to talk about uh fixing systemic racism we have to put our money where our mouth is so we have to truly ensure that we fund programming for the communities that mostly need it um what gives me hope is seeing what those protests have done which is to getting the mayor from saying we're going to cut summer youth and summer youth to saying we're going to fund it and now we have to hold them accountable to those words um the a lot of the, the drastic change that we have seen in many of these politicians is what gives me hope um just a lot of the youth coming together they know that this is important they're beginning to educate themselves they're they're furthering educating themselves they're reaching out to individuals to learn more it that's a lot of the things i mean and just the, the group of people that i work with it just gives me so much hope because i mean wow like i could not i can't do this alone i this is not me this is a group of multiple driven youth individuals that that are hard working and that are super smart and that just want what's right Thank you for joining the Future Works podcast. You can download previous episodes at www.niatep.org.